0: do you enjoy a good story? Because I do. If you know me, you know that I love stories and I love reading and I love the, the, the cheap way as well of watching movies. Uh, I just enjoy a, a good story. And in fact, maybe I'm addicted. Maybe I just crave them a well-crafted story. When I was you know, a little bit younger, my kids would come to me when they were a little bit younger as well and they would say, hey dad, Tell me a story or, or read me a story. And We would sit down and they would sort of be enamored as we work through the story together. And there has been a seemingly countless amount of tales and stories written over thousands and thousands of years. And we still soak those up, stories both old and new. And in most stories, there's something that needs to be fixed that was broken. There's something that needs to be mended or there's someone that needs help that needs saving and and a hero comes along. But there's something within us, I think, that desires, that longs for... A happy ending, and so we want to see Tony Stark stop Thanos. You want to see Luke Skywalker prevail against Darth Vader. You want to see Voldemort finally be dealt with. You want to see the White Witch banished from Narnia. You want to see the orcs outside of the Shire. We want wrong to be righted. We want good to win over evil. We want the story's ending to be a happy ending. But have you ever done this? Have you ever? read a story, or or watched a movie, and the ending doesn't happen the way that you want it to end, don't you hate that? Because there's something in you, you're thinking, no, this isn't right, this is how the story was supposed to go. And even in those stories where it doesn't end the way that we want it to end, those stories still kind of leave us with this impression that there's a certain way things are supposed to go that there are wrongs that need to be righted. And I think even stories that don't have a happy ending remind us that all is not right and they leave us wanting more. But there's something in us that, that desires that longs for a happy ending, to see the story end rightly. And I think this is an inherent part of the Christian worldview, that there's something in us that knows that the story has to end well. That's what we're talking about today. So we've said, you know, we've been looking at this narrative of creation, fall, grace last week, and today we sort of close the book with glory and we arrive at the end of the book. Today we look to the future and this grand story to the ending and we see there a happy ending. We find the ultimate ending. And so for about a month, we've been working through the idea of a Christian worldview. And we've said this all along, that a worldview is like a pair of glasses. If you have red lenses on, you see the world in red. If you have blue lenses on, you see the world in blue. If you wear prescription glasses, the world might be fuzzy. You put those on and the world comes into clarity. That's what the Christian worldview does for us. It helps us see the world clearly. And we funnel everything through Scripture. That we might know what God says. That is what informs our Christian world view. And so up to this point, can we review just a little bit because we've been building sort of a cumulative case together. And so we said in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, not because he had to, because he wanted to. God created everything for his glory. And we find our purpose in God, our meaning, our value, our purpose, our sense of right and wrong in God. And we said that sometimes we are tempted to worship the creation Instead of the creator. And that's when life gets out of kilter for us. Because we were made to love God, to enjoy God always and to worship and praise him. Then the bad news entered into our story. Mankind willfully rebelled against God. And we said because of that that we died spiritually, we're separated from God. That because of that we die physically and if there's no intervention that ultimately we'll die eternally separated from God and the fall led to the fallout and because of that there's guilt and shame and sin and suffering and sorrow and death and we said that we need a cure then last week in our story we looked at grace and we said that the world's problems were answered in the person of Jesus Christ and we talked about the cure for the sickness that we have of sin and the means of our salvation grace it's a free gift from God it's God's unmerited favor and that's where we find our identity and our meaning and our purpose in Christ and so today as we close this this grand story we look to the future and we talk about glory and we find ourselves stuck between grace and glory in fact we've put it this way before that we live between the already and the not yet that Christ has started to work in our lives And that when he returns, he will complete the work that he has started. And not only will he redeem us fully, but all of creation will be restored. Sin and sorrow and death has been defeated in what Christ did. And it'll be fully completed when he returns. And so sin and sorrow and death do not have the final word. And so to begin, I want to read from you, read from Revelation this morning. We're going to look at a lot of different passages today because we're kind of filling in a lot of gaps as we kind of close the story out. Revelation 21.4, here's what John writes. This sort of paints the whole backdrop for our time together today. Revelation 21.4, it says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. Friends, Christians, we cannot fully imagine or comprehend what lays in wait for us when Christ returns. And so this morning we're going to look forward together in our story. We're going to look at what is coming as we continue to march on. Take a look at the final chapters of our grand story, but as we go forward, I want to go back just a little bit to the year 1984, where a band named REM released a song titled It's the end of the world as we know it and I feel fine. It's the end of the world as we know it and I feel fine, and I was thinking, what should we title today's sermon? And I couldn't think of anything better than those lines. There's this day coming where the the world will end, the world as we know it will come to a screeching halt. And in that moment, as a Christian, I have no gripes. It's all going to be okay. I will feel completely fine in that moment because of this future hope that we have in Christ. And so if you're taking notes, that is our first point. It's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine. And we must understand this final piece of the Christian worldview and how it informs our reality, where we are headed, what happens in the end. So if you're taking notes, our first thought this morning is what happens when we die? What happens when we die? Now, we talked a little bit about this during the fall. According to the Christian worldview, there are only two final destinations. One is in the presence of God, and one is being excluded from his presence. So two final destinations, the presence of God absent from the presence of God. This past week, I I got in a theological debate on uh, social media, because that's the best place to have theological debates, you know? (laughs) Um, But it was, it was kind. It wasn't, you know, one of those kind of debates. And this guy said to me, he said, um, and it's a friend of mine, I know him. He said, you know, people say that what makes hell, hell is the absence of God's presence. He said, but that's wrong. And I said, okay, well, tell me why it's wrong. And he said, because God is omnipresent. That is, God is everywhere. And that would include hell or God can't be omnipresent. And I said, yeah, you're right, that's true, because it's scriptural. Because even David said, if I descend into the depths of Sheol, you're there. God is everywhere. However, here's what we have to be reminded of. Even though God has complete awareness of what's going on in hell, his felt presence will not be there. In other words, people that spend eternity in a place called hell, the Bible calls hell, will not experience the presence of God, and that's what makes it truly hellacious. And so in our world, sure there's a lot of evil and a lot of bad, but God's presence is also felt and experienced even for those who aren't Christians. Theologians call that common grace, that God is good even to those who hate and despise who he is and what he says. And so two destinations, one with God's presence, one absent of God's presence. Paul writes to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, eight. He says, yes, we are of good courage. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Or maybe you've heard this, it quoted this way, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord and so Paul lets us know that when we die we are separated from our bodies at death and we are in God's presence as Christians and this is one of those big questions you know we have we talk about philosophical questions that are deep and big where do we come from where are we going what happens when we die what gives us meaning and value and purpose Christian worldview answers all of those and this is one of those such questions but we said this that every worldview No worldview gets a pass. It's not like Christianity has to answer all the hard questions and the other worldviews get a free pass. No, no. We're playing by the rules. Everybody has to answer the big questions. And so what happens when we die has to be answered by every worldview. And so naturalism, the idea that everything you see is the result of pure coincidence, accident, happenstance, that we got here naturally, Naturalism says this, that that when you die, that's it. Your your birth, your life, your death really have no lasting significance, no meaning, no purpose. Even if you cure cancer, even if you do this amazing thing, you may might get in the history books for a few years, but eventually the sun's going to burn out, everything's going to collapse, and nobody's going to know. No lasting significance. And when you die, that's it. So enjoy the ride because that's all you get. Eastern pantheistic religions will teach you this, that at death you might be reincarnated for a thousand cycles till you work off all of your debt, until you are rejoined with the universe, or you pass beyond personality and reach a place of enlightenment, but you're not conscious. It's not a conscious, eternal life. Christianity teaches that this life that we experience now is such a small part of our ongoing existence and these answers are all radically different. So we better get it right. And this is where I'm sort of struck sometimes by our society. We will focus on so many different things and we'll dwell on things and think about things that have no real importance and the big questions in life often get ignored. And these are the questions we have to get right because they have present implications, maybe eternal implications as well. And so as we think about the end of the world as we know it, what else will happen? Well, we know this, that Christ is going to return. All throughout the New Testament, we're reminded that Jesus is coming back. Let me read John 14, 3 to you. Jesus says this, he says, and if I go and I prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may also be. Now, how often do we think about that? Because what happens to me, and we're a lot alike in a lot of ways, because we're people, what happens to me often is I get so caught up in the moment, I get so concerned with everything that needs to be done that sometimes I forget to zoom out and be reminded of where everything is marching, where history is headed. And so with the return of Christ, there will also be a resurrection, How do I know that? Well, because the New Testament tells us about it. Paul writes, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. He says, but we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, sisters, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as those who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, grace, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. For this we declare to you by word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be called up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord, and therefore encourage one another with these Words. And so with the return of Christ, with his second coming, Scripture tells us that those who have died, their soul will be physically reunited with their body. There will be this resurrection. Just as Christ was risen from the dead, so will we raised from the dead as well. We will go into eternity worshiping with a physical body. Now, what else is going to happen in the end? We know Christ is going to return. We know there's going to be a resurrection. Well, there's also going to be a judgment. Now, we're reminded in Timothy 4.1 that Christ will return and he will judge the living and the dead. If you're familiar with the Apostles' Creed, you know this is in there. Christ will return, he will judge the living and the dead. And there's going to be two judgments for all of humanity. The first one is for Christians that we'll talk about today. And it's called the judgment seat of Christ. Now, Paul writes about this, 2 Corinthians 5.10. Let me read it to you. He says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, speaking to Christians, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether for good or evil. Now, what's going to happen at the judgment seat of Christ? Well, one thing that's not going to happen is we're not going to be judged for our sins. And you say, well, what's the story with that if, we're, if it's the judgment We're not going to be judged for our sins? No. Well, why aren't we going to be judged for our sins at the judgment seat of Christ? Because remember last week, grace, all of our sins are done away with in grace. And so when I stand before God, he's not going to see Josh Fultz. He's going to see Jesus Christ because Jesus died in my stead. I am covered in the blood of Christ. And so my sins are not going to be up for judgment. Now, some will say, well, if that's the case, If that's the case, why can't I just live like I want and sin all I want to? Paul talks about this in Romans, but here's the truth. The only person that would say that would be a baby Christian or a lost person. Now, why is that? Well, let's suppose that I knew no matter what happens, my wife will never leave me. She's gonna stick with me. And so I say, you know what? I'm gonna live the way I wanna live. I don't care if it hurts her. I don't care if I do her wrong. If I love my wife, I would never do that, right? In the same way it is with Christ, that if we are in a relationship, a true relationship with Christ, we understand that he wants what's best for us, and so we do what he tells us to do. We understand that we want to keep our relationship close with the Lord, and so we live in a way that's not going to bring any offense to that relationship. But at the judgment seat of Christ, I'm not going to be judged for my sins. And so maybe we say, well, what is this judgment about? Well, this is all about rewards. We'll be judged on our faithfulness to God. We'll be judged on the degree that we walked as a disciple. And not only that, we'll be judged on why we do the things we do. Now, let's be honest, Christians. Sometimes we do the right thing, but we do it for the wrong reasons. And I know I'm guilty of this, right? Where I do the thing God would have me to do, but I do it perhaps so other people will say, well, look at that guy. Isn't he a great Christian? Here's what Jesus said about it, Matthew 6 two. He said, thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you do, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have their reward. And so Jesus is saying, if you're going to do a good thing, great, but do it for the right reason. Don't do it to be seen by men. Do it because you love the Lord or because you see the need that is present. While we do what we do is important. And so at this judgment, our our motives are going to be checked. And all the things we did good for the wrong reasons, all that's going to be burned away. And I think we would both agree that when we stand before the Lord... We want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We want to have crowns to cast at the Lord's feet because we love and we worship the Lord. And so Christians will be judged, but also non-Christians will be judged. And what the Bible refers to as the great white throne judgment, not a place that you want to be. Where if you're at this judgment, you stand condemned to be separated from the presence of the Lord. For all eternity. John writes about it. Let me read it to you. Revelation 20 verses 11 through 15. He says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. There's no escape here. He says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were open, the books of scripture. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. That is the second death. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. What a sobering reminder. Sobering reminder for Christian and non-Christian alike. For the Christian to share our faith with people around us for the non-christians to know that a day is coming where if we don't resolve this problem that we have with the grace of God, that our eternal destination is to be separated from God. And all it takes, and I think we have to be reminded of this because we want to kind of make categories out of sin, is that all it takes is one sin to separate us from God. Why is that? Because he's perfect, sinless, and holy. And Sing, a single solitary sin will separate us. And so I'm reminded as we look at this, as we look at what is to come, that we're to be ready. The day is coming when Christ will return and we are to be ready. Where will you be standing under judgment as a Christian or as someone who said, no, thank you? Paul writes 1 Thessalonians 5.2, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. That is to say, who knows when Christ will return? That there's this sense of urgency there. That we should be living as Christians. And if we're not Christians, that we should really think deeply about these issues. Because they have lasting significance. So what else is going to come in the end? Christ will return. Resurrection. There will be a judgment. I also want you to see this, church. That Eden will be restored. The curse of sin will be fully undone, and man will live as we should have from the very beginning. In fact, Scripture tells us this, that we will be like Christ. Now, we won't have the abilities that Christ has, but we know this all the way back to Genesis. We're created in the image of God. That image was tarnished, and so that's going to be restored, and we're going to be like Christ. The image fully restored of what it means to be made in God's image. And so there's this process of salvation, justification, sanctification, glorification. Justification is the idea that when we come to Christ, we repent, we turn to him, we are made just, we are justified before God, that he sees Christ and not us. And then the next journey in that is is where we are now as Christians, this process of sanctification, where God is renewing our minds, where he's changing us, transforming us to be made like Christ, but in the end, when Christ returns, all of that work is complete and what we refer to is glorification where we're given glorified bodies where we're no longer slaves to sin paul writes about it 1 corinthians 15:42 through 44 he says this i'm just going to read it to you He says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable, raised imperishable. What's sown in dishonor, raised in glory. What was sown in weakness, raised in power. What was sown in natural body, raised a spiritual body. No more pain or suffering, no more sinful nature. Also, when Eden is restored, take courage in this and comfort in this. There's not going to be another fall. We're not going to have 2.0 where we go through this whole thing again. Now, sometimes I get asked this question, well, how do you know there's not going to be sin in heaven? How is that going to happen? Because it seems so foreign to me to think of an existence where I'm not tempted daily to do wrong. Well, the reason I know that is because Scripture says it's not going to be there. Let me read again the verse we started out on, Revelation one four. Here's what it says. Christ will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, crying, or pain for the former things have passed away. Now, here's what I know. If death, sorrow is not present, sin cannot be present because sin always leads to sorrow and death. And so we see this picture in Scripture where there's not going to be sin, and maybe you say, well, how's that going to be? I don't know, but we can speculate just a little bit. It could be that in eternity, God's presence is so overwhelming that we won't have the desire to sin. It could be that this life has shown us the consequences of sin and that will remove our desire because we're not going to be slaves to sin anymore. We'll be made like Christ. Or it could be that since we've chosen Christ in this life, that in eternity we'll no longer have the freedom to choose to sin. I don't know. All I know is when we get to return in eternity, our relationships are going to be restored with God and man and we will be at peace. What else is going to happen when Eden is restored? Well, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. We see the complete restoration of all of creation. Let me read again, Revelation 21.1. Here's what John says. He says, then I saw a new heaven and I saw a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. We will live with God in paradise and we will do what God intended us to do in the first place. Now, here's the thing. We're not going to be floating around on clouds in heaven, plinking on some pretty harp. That's not what heaven's going to be like. It's going to be a restoration to what God intended in the first place, where we are worshiping, where we're glorifying God in creation, enjoying his presence, where we walk and appreciate the good and the true and the beautiful. Now, Let me read to you what Dallas Willard has to say about this. He says, God loves the earth dearly and never takes his hands off of it. And because he loves it and it's good, our care of it is also eternal work and a part of our eternal life. Now think about this, church. We're going to be tending the gardens again in paradise. We're going to be making new music in eternity we're going to be writing new poetry in eternity and I I had this epiphany this week what if I get to heaven and J.R.R. Tolkien walks up to me and he says hey you want to read my new stories right right my mind is, is blown by that. Art is for eternity and we're gonna build and create and tend because remember, God made creation, it was good and in enjoying creation, we glorify God and that's gonna be a part of our eternal existence, church. All of creation is going to be restored. Now, as we wind down this morning and, and land this plane, how does, the, how does this aspect of the Christian worldview help us to understand reality in the moment? Well, I think the first thing it does is remind us of this, that we have hope. That that Christian, don't get so bogged down in the details of this current existence. Be reminded that good things are coming. Do you believe that? Because I truly do. Now think about this. For the Christian, this is the only hell we will ever know as our present existence. Now think about that. It's only going to get better for us as Christians. And this existence has been pretty amazing, for me at least, but it's only gonna get better. But for those who are outside of Christ, this is the only quote unquote heaven they will ever experience. That should fill us with sadness. Now why are they experiencing some heaven here on earth? Because of God's good grace. That even those who despise him, God still allows good into their lives. What is the Christian worldview? How does it help us understand reality in the moment? What reminds us of this, that we don't have anything to fear. It's the end of the world as we know it. I feel fine. Everything's going to be okay. I talk to Christians sometimes who get so worked up about what's to come. Christians, why? What, What are we scared of? The God who made everything, the God who has power over life and death, holds us in his hands. And sometimes I talk to Christians who get so wound up about the state of the world and everything that's going wrong and all the evil. What did we expect? Sinners are going to act like sinners. This is how it works. The fall took its toll. We need a cure. I talk to people who get so worked up about the political landscape. What do you expect? Power corrupts. Sin comes out of all of us. Now, do I love to see Christians in Washington? Absolutely. The cultural mandate, we are to be salt and light. But we don't have anything to fear. And so we shouldn't live as fearful people in our present condition. What else does the Christian worldview, this aspect of, of glory, help us understand about reality? Well, I think it should help us to develop an eternal focus. Knowing what's come reminds me to use the time that I have in the present accordingly. That's why Paul writes to the Ephesians, Ephesians 5, 16, redeem the time, redeem the time. Use the little bit of time that you have, the season of your life, which is a short season, maybe we get a hundred years, right, to redeem the time. It's why Moses in Psalm 90 wrote this, number your days, live with the end in mind. We have to develop an eternal focus as Christians. Is what I'm doing today, does it have significance? Now, you may say, well, I don't really see what me doing at work has as far as eternal significance, but that's not correct. Because remember when we talked about creation, we said this, that God created all these different vocations and they're all sacred and we do them all unto the Lord. And so raising kids, working, building culture, all of that is done unto the Lord. But we live with the end in mind, knowing that some ways we use our time is a waste. We number our days. We have an eternal focus. Now, as we close this series out, I want to kind of put everything together as we think through what it means to have a Christian worldview. Now, we said this, in the beginning, God created everything. He made creation vibrant and beautiful and wonderful. And he did it because he can and because it all points to him because he's a glorious God and nature Points us to this truth that God is deserving of our praise and our worship. Because God made us in his image, that we have meaning and value and purpose. However, our tendency is to worship what he made instead of worshiping him. That led us to the fall. Adam and Eve, mankind, all of us willfully sinned against God. We died spiritually, we die physically, eventually we'll die eternally if there's not an intervention. And because of the fall, there was the fallout with sin and sorrow and death and shame and guilt and suffering, alienation, difficulty in life. But last week we saw this cure called grace, unmerited favor of God. It is the solution to what is wrong with the world. And it's only available through one person. There is one name under heaven and earth which man can be saved through and that's Jesus Christ. And it's a free gift. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. And for those who are in Christ, we know what's coming. It's going to be glory. And it's going to be glorious. What God will do. And it gives us a future hope. It gives us a reason to not be so bogged down with sorrow and sadness in this life. Because it's just a short moment. Something better than we could have ever imagined is coming. And so we live in light of eternity. We understand that what we do today with our time has lasting significance. If we use it wisely. Now, to tie all that together, I want to remind us that we, ha- Christians, we have to think with a Christian worldview. And in thinking with a Christian worldview, that has to spill over into living with a Christian worldview. Now, if you remember from five weeks ago, I shared these statistics with you. That for every 10 men in your church, and I love having men in church, amen? Because men are the backbone of the family structure. For every 10 men in your church, nine will have kids that leave the church. Now, how does our Christian worldview impact that statement? Because a true Christian worldview teaches us the importance of discipling our kids and preparing them for what they'll encounter as they go out into the world. And it reminds us of what is important, because let's be honest, parents, we could have our kids in 3,000 activities if we wanted to, but are we doing that at the expense of making them into disciples? Because what endures is that discipleship, not the other things that we get so heavily involved in. We said eight will not find their job satisfying. How does a Christian worldview impact that? Because we know this, that we do everything we do for the glory of of God, And so it doesn't matter whether you're a plumber or a pastor or a bus driver or a physician, whatever we do, all work is sacred. We do it unto God and in that vocation we can point other people to Christ. Our Christian worldview affects our work. We said six pay the m- monthly minimum on their credit card bill. Our Christian worldview informs us and in that we have a little bit of time so we steward these resources we have wisely. If we get into overwhelming debt, we can't really use our finances to leverage in this life for what's to come. We said this, that five have a major problem, five five out of ten men in a church have a major problem with pornography. Well, we saw in the fall the effects of sin, that it always leads to sin, sorrow, death, and alienation. And so the secret sins that we have cause death in our relationships. We said this, that four men out of ten in your church will get divorced. What have we noticed in understanding a Christian worldview? We understand the reason that we have conflict with other people. What is that? Well, it's sin. And we understand that there, we have to take responsibility for our own sin and extend grace in mending those relationships. What I want us to see, church, is that our Christian worldview is directly applicable in every situation in this life. So we have to think with our world view, how we use our bodies, how we view our jobs, how we spend our money, how we raise our kids, that we know time is limited so we better be telling people that we love and that we care about who Jesus is and what he's done in our lives. So I want to ask you this morning, where do you need to think differently and where do you need to do differently? Because anytime God reveals truth to us, he always invites us to respond to that truth. And every time I open God's word, I see things that need to be changed. What is God telling you that you need to think differently in or need to do differently? And if you say, well, I've identified it, then our, our, our movement forward from there is that we repent. That we say, God, I'm sorry, I haven't been thinking Christianly in this way. And we ask for his help to change that behavior, to change that way of thinking, and we do better. Church, this is what I'm convinced of right now. What the world needs and what the church needs are Christians who truly embody what it means to be a Christian and who live out that understanding of a Christian worldview in every facet of life. Now, are we going to do that perfectly? We're not. But we can strive to do it perfectly. That's what Christ is calling us to do. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you today thankful that we can call you Father. And Lord, we're thankful for your Son and what your Son has done for us, Lord. That we had a problem, the whole earth has a problem, the whole world has a problem, Lord. But you sent your Son as the cure to this problem that we have, that we might know you and that we might have a future, God. Lord, will you help us to think Christianly? Will you help us to see every category of life as an extension of our Christian worldview? Or will you help us to walk in wisdom? Will you help us to redeem the time? Will you help us to number our days? Lord, we want you to know that we love you, that we praise you. God, help us to be who we're called to be. All these things we pray in your name.